Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Open your Bibles, would you, to Daniel chapter 2. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Daniel chapter 2 in a Bible study that I've entitled, How Do I Deal With My Anger? And as we learned last time, God is on center stage in this Bible study through the book of Daniel. And he's using the events and arranging the events surrounding the captivity of Judah under the reign of this man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel and his young friends were a part of this captivity, and so they'll get much attention as we watch how God uses them greatly. And while Daniel is away being trained in the ways of the Babylonian culture, remember the king has had this recurring, ongoing, troubling dream. It may be one dream, it may be many dreams, but as we learn, God can reach anyone. And Nebuchadnezzar, to all outward perspectives, would say that he's unreachable. I mean, his position and all the guards around him. And he's the the leader of the known world. And yet, he was not unreachable to God. God got to him, and he got to him right in his head, in his sleep. Pick up with me in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Daniel. It says, One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that disturbed him so much that he couldn't sleep. He called in his magicians, his enchanters, and his sorcerers and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he dreamed. And as they stood before the king, he said, I have had a dream that troubles me. Tell me what I have dreamed, for I must know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, Long live the king. Tell us the dream, and we'll tell you what it means. But the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you'll be torn limb from limb and your houses will be demolished into heaps of rubble. Now that comes from a word from the mouth of an angry man. If you don't do what I tell you, I'm going to destroy you limb from limb and destroy all your property. God speaks to this unbelieving king getting his attention through this dream, which to me is very encouraging that anyone that we're praying for, God wants to speak. God wants to reach them, and he can, and he will. Nebuchadnezzar was a tyrant, an out-of-control man, a madman, you would say. He would be someone that we would be able to tell that anger was his controlling emotion. You know, everybody has a primary emotion, one that they revert to in times of trouble, one that they revert to when they want to manipulate or control a situation. And some people just happen to use anger as a manipulative emotion. I mean, what I'm speaking of is out-of-control anger. What I'm speaking of is the kind of anger that demeans, that demolishes, the kind of anger that'll tear somebody limb from limb, the kind of anger that will destroy and not build up. For Nebuchadnezzar, this was his. Notice in verse 5, he he threatens, because anger, this type of anger is often threatening. It says that I'll tear you limb from limb and I'll destroy your houses into heaps of rubble. Notice verse 12. The king was furious when he heard this, and he sent out orders to execute, to literally murder all the wise men of Babylon. Look at verse 19. That night the secret was revealed to Daniel and in a vision, and Daniel praised God of heaven, saying, Praise the name of God forever and ever, for he alone has all wisdom and power. Now, I don't know why I included it on my notes, but it's a good verse. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 13. Because we're looking at the anger of Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 3, verse 13. This is more appropriate on this theme. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage. If anyone has ever watched someone fly into a rage, say amen. amen. So you know what he's talking about. This is a guy you get out of the way. This is a guy or a gal, could represent a woman, that you just stay away from. This is someone that you can watch the, almost like in their face and in their mannerisms, it's like a, like a temperature gauge. And you can just see the temperature go, oh, until they blow their top. 
And here he is flying into a rage and he orders Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, when they were brought in. And we'll get to that. Look at verse 19. It says in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. Nebuchadnezzar was an angry man. Anger and the wrath of man is an area that completely destroys lives. This emotion can be so destructive and so hurtful that it forever harms the person that is the object. But it's also an area that Christians, those that say they follow Jesus Christ, those that claim to be born again, those that might be known as churchgoers, those that might read their Bible, those that say they are distinct and different from the world, those that say, I want to do what's right, I want to follow God, I'm committed, those that would say in the general banner of evangelical Christianity, anger is often an emotion that is excused, ignored, and even sometimes when, they, when you really want to get spiritual, it's labeled righteous and godly. A righteous and godly anger. Because you would call somebody and call them to account if, you do get, if you're able to have a relationship close enough to them and you're able to have that dialogue with them, you may ask them, you know, you, you seem like an angry person or you're, you're trying to help them. And the response comes back perhaps something like this. Didn't Jesus turn over tables? And your answer is, yeah, of course he did. And then they might say, shouldn't we be angry at abortion? The answer is, of course, of course we should, it's evil. Shouldn't we be angry at evil? Yes. Can't we be angry, some might say, as long as we don't sin? And the answer, of course, is yes. And yet, those aren't being shared as biblical truths, but instead the Bible is being used and perhaps a little distorted and twisted in order to make an excuse for your sinful anger or what the Bible would call an outburst of wrath. There are certain areas in our lives where anger is appropriate. Anger is not an emotion that's completely forbidden, not at all. When we see sin, when we experience evil, when there is injustice, there should be some rise of emotion in us that declares that wrong, perhaps even leading to an action of attempting to make it right, standing in the gap for orphans and widows and those that have no voice. But that's not the king here, Nebuchadnezzar. Righteous anger isn't described as being furious or flying off the handle. Righteous anger isn't described often with words of wrath and just wanting to avoid the person. That's not what we're looking at today, neither is it what's described in Nebuchadnezzar. The target of our topic today is sinful anger and how God forbids it. And not only does he forbid it, but he enables it. He enables the power to avoid it, I should say, in our lives. That we are able then to walk in the spirit, not fulfilling the lust of our flesh. The Bible declares outbursts of wrath as sin, as works of the flesh, to be avoided. To, to be laid aside, to be repented from. Would you turn over to James chapter one with me? James chapter one. As we walk on this journey on the freedom of dealing with our anger, and I believe that some of you listening in right now, God is asking you, he's commanding you, he's encouraging you to deal with your anger. And the first step in dealing with our anger is admitting that it's sinful and that it's hurtful and to stop making excuses. And might I just add here in these beginning stages of our Bible study that the wisdom of God is different than the wisdom of the world. So that when you're asking for help on topics and you receive wisdom from the world, albeit good suggestions, and you have wisdom from God, the proper order is God's wisdom first and then the world's wisdom. I went searching for, I did some internet searches on how to handle anger because I wanted to see what the world says. And so the Trusted Mayo Clinic 
has a website. It says, Anger Management, 10 Tips to Tame Your Temper. And so let me read to you the 10 things. They're not all bad, but let me give you the 10 things. Number one, think before you speak, which is exactly what James is going to say in a moment. Number two, once you're calm, express your anger. Number three, I like this one, get some exercise. (laughs) Physical activity can help reduce stress. Number four, and this is great for adults, take a time out. Take a time out. Timeouts aren't just for kids. Give yourself short breaks during times of the day. Number five, identify possible solutions. Number six, stick with I statements. I thought that was interesting. To avoid criticizing or placing blame, which might only increase tension, use I statements to describe the problem. Be respectful and specific. Okay. Number seven, don't hold a grudge. That sounds biblical. Don't hold a grudge. Number eight, use humor to release tension, (laughs) which is kind of difficult when you're angry. But this is the advice. Number nine, practice relaxation skills. When your temper flares, put relaxation skills to work. Practice deep breathing exercises. Imagine a relaxing scene or repeat a calming word or phrase such as, take it easy, (laughs) what it says. (laughs) You might also want to listen to music or write in a journal or do a few yoga poses, not whatever it takes to encourage relaxation. And number 10, know when to seek help. Some of those are really, is really good advice. Really good advice. But might I say, it's not by might and it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. And I think pausing and stopping and breathing and taking a time out are all good in the moment that will decrease the escalation in anger but never really deals with the issue. It never really deals with the core issue of the anger that's inside of you. In James chapter one, I draw your attention to verse 19, if you'd get there with me. James 1.19 says, my dear brothers and sisters, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Your anger can never make things right in God's sight. Would you mark that? Your anger can never make things right in God's sight. I really like the New King James Version where it says, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Would you accept that as biblical truth today, church? Would you accept the truth and an amen to God, even in your heart, that anger can never make things right in God's sight? The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In the spirit submitted to God, he can temper our tempers. He can encourage, he can strengthen us to take it down a notch not by just mere words repeating in our mind, but to literally remove the root of anger in our hearts. You see, you just can't go around the office or the house angry, yelling and screaming, tempers flying, frustrations vented. You know, in our culture today, venting is a real popular thing. We actually use that word, I wanna vent on you, I wanna vent on you, but the Bible says that a fool vents all his emotions that a fool gives rise to this venting. You say, well, wait a minute, Ed. What do I do with everything that's pent up? The Bible says for believers to cast your cares upon the Lord, and he will care for you. And you go, wait a minute, Ed. I don't have any relationship with God, and I'm an angry man. What's the answer for me? You repent of your sins and receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and begin to experience that relationship with God of what it means to walk free from the pain and penalty of your entirety of your sinful. Because if you're not a believer today, anger is not your biggest issue. It might be your most pronounced issue. It might be what people are upset about. It might be people why don't, they don't call you anymore. They don't hang around with you anymore. They don't want anything to do with you. That's a big problem. But if you're not saved today, that's not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is that you're disconnected from God. And that's where it begins. 
whether it's an unbeliever, a person that's not walking with God, comes to him for the first time, or it's us as believers acknowledging our sinful anger before God and admitting that it is, we have sinned against a holy, righteous God and that we've sinned against our neighbor. Wouldn't you agree that sinful anger is not loving your neighbor? Jesus said the highest thing we could do is to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind and to love our neighbor. Not only is it destructive to the person in front of us, it's also self-destructive. It destroys us from the inside. He's like running around the office, I hate this place, and throwing things, and punching things, and throwing things, moving things, and then your, your co-worker's there, and he's going, you know, I'm having a bad day, and you go, oh, how would you like to hear about the love of Jesus Christ? And they're like, you're inconsistent. You're, they may not be so bold, but they're thinking, yeah, I don't know, I don't think I want anything to do with the God you're telling me. Because if the God that you worship is making you that, I don't need more of that in my life. The freedom that's available to you is found by faith. Never, ever, never, ever, ever does the wrath of man produce anything of the righteousness of God. Jot it down in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 29. It says, people with understanding control their anger. And check this out. This is so wise. You know it to be true. A hot temper shows great foolishness. A young lady came to the great evangelist, Billy Sunday, many years ago after he had delivered a message on anger. And she tried to rationalize and explain away her angry outburst. And she said, and I quote, there's nothing wrong with losing my temper, she said. I blow up and then it's over. And Sunday replied, so does a shotgun and look at the damage it leaves behind. Anger always leaves victims and long-lasting damage. Every time we lose our tempers, we lose our credibility, we lose our respect, and much, if not all, of our Christian witness. Jump ahead to chapter 3 now of James. Chapter 3 of James, verse 17. Because in, in James, we're given wisdom from above. The difference between wisdom from below what the world looks like and sounds like and what the wisdom from above sounds like, what God sounds like. Notice with me, James chapter three, verse 13. It says, if you're wise and understand God's ways, live a life of steady goodness so that only good deeds will pull forth. And if you don't brag about the good you do, then you'll be truly wise. But if you're bitterly jealous and there's selfish ambition in your hearts, don't brag about being wise. That's the worst kind of lie. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and motivated by the devil. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you'll find disorder and every kind of evil. But the wisdom from above for, that comes from heaven is first of all pure. It's also peace-loving gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It's full of mercy and good deeds. It shows no partiality and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of goodness. It's impossible to be angry and gentle at the same time. They're contrary to one another. There aren't, you're not able to be both. And anger in its destructive ways removes all gentleness from us. Now I want to show you how anger unhindered will grow in the life of a man by the name of Moses. Are you familiar with Moses? What a great man of God. What a tremendous man to watch in our lives and learn from. Anger can easily get the best of us, especially when it's left unchecked and unrepented of. And I would even say when it's unrepented of and then you add excuses and you go, well, I've always been that way, but God wants you to change. Well, you know, I was just raised in an angry home, but God wants you to change. Well, you know, it's my personality and it's the kind of, it's, it's sort of, you know, the, this is my ethnicity and this is, this is just how we, no, God wants you to change. He's calling you to a higher level, not a low base fleshly level. And so excuses abound. It could be spiritual excuses. They could be practical excuses. We can justify just about anything. 
And so when sin in our lives, especially anger, goes unrepented, and then we layer over it excuses, it begins to take root in our heart, and then it begins to manifest bitterness, resentment, holding grudges, unforgiveness. They're all tied together. The root is to deal with the anger because anger is almost always associated with some type of pain at being wronged, some response at being wronged. And we're introduced to Moses in his life. If you turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, way back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 32, as Moses is overlooking the promised land from Mount Nebo. And he's receiving the word, and this is, a, this is the end of his life, in Deuteronomy 32, he's receiving word from God. And imagine this, everything that Moses has been through, everything that he's experienced, the first 40 years of his life, then the, the second 40 years of his life on the backside of the wilderness, then another 40 years wandering through the wilderness, like he's at the end of his life anticipating going into the promised land and listen to what it says, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 48. That same day the Lord said to Moses, go to Moab, to the mountains east of the river, and climb Mount Nebo, which is across from Jericho. Look, out, look across the land of Canaan, the land that I am giving to the people of Israel is their own possession. Verse 50, then you must die there on the mountain and join your ancestors just as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor and joined his ancestors. For both of you broke faith with me among the Israelites at the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. You failed to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel there. So you will see the land from a distance, but you may not enter the land that I am giving to the people of Israel." And to that we say, what? 120 years, the last 40 of which he spent leading the children of Israel through all the murmuring, all the complaining, all the difficulties. This is the same man that the Bible describes as more humble than any man on the planet Earth. Can you imagine? Actually, Moses wrote that of himself. How hard that must have been to write what a humble man he was to write that. Out. Like, I'm very humble. You know, you know, whenever you start to speak about your humility, you've lost it. But inspired by the Holy Spirit, Moses was able to write it. And yet the reward of 120 years was, you will not enter in. You will die. And you will not go in. Why? Well, because you failed to demonstrate my holiness. He tells him, basically, you misrepresented me. You did something I didn't ask you to do. And what you did represented me and it was misrepresenting. And I can't help but think that there's bitter sweetness in his heart, in his mind here. As he is there on Mount Nebo overlooking. We've actually stood on Mount Nebo uh, when we took one of our excursions to Petra on one of our trips. And even though it was a little cloudy there, you know, even a little hazy there, it was a fascinating view. And I, I can't help but think of what Moses must have seen on that day. And he would see the land but not personally experience it. And yet, there is a sweetness in here because even though Moses is not going to experience, the people are going to go in because God always keeps his promises. And so the truth of God's faithfulness won't not be thwarted by our unfaithfulness even though our unfaithfulness can sometimes withhold our enjoyment of the blessings of God. The consequences of sin can hurt us deeply, especially when it comes to anger. And as I was studying this, I found a streak of anger in the life of Moses. It comes up over and over and over again. Even though he was a mighty man of God, even though God used him greatly from an early age, his mom set him afloat by faith on the Nile River. I mean, he, he, you can just look at the destiny as we watch his life and you'll see, you'll be able to see it in your life looking backward, just the destiny that God had set for you and how God had it all planned for Moses and we get to see it unfold and, and it starts there with his mom said, putting him out on the Nile River and how all, all of the, the circumstances lined up for him to grow up in Pharaoh's home and be trained and all the, I mean, it, it was a setup, even though at the time it didn't look very good and very promising. And even though he was a mighty man of God, mighty men of God can make serious mistakes. I'm reminded of Abram and his tendency to lie. 
I'm reminded of Jacob and his tendency to manipulate. I'm reminded of David and his adultery and even his murder. Some of the failures that he experienced as a dad. And yet in the hands of God, each of these men, and we can mention a few women in the Bible as well, God chose to use and redeem for his glory because even the worst of situations can be redeemed by God. And that's one of the amazing things about following God and trusting in Jesus Christ, abiding in him, is learning the lesson that some of the worst things in your life and what can be perceived as the worst things to ever happen can actually turn out to be the best. Because God can redeem and he can take, he can take something, he can take ashes and bring beauty out of it. We have a tendency to see ashes and see no hope and no potential. And yet God sees beyond that and he can. And we know that God uses weak. We know that God uses frail people. We know God uses sinners because that's all he has. He uses those that get written off. He uses those that have no future. I mean, I, I was thinking of this recently and talking to someone. I'm just so grateful for the ministry of Calvary Chapel. I'm so grateful for my pastor and, and for Pastor Chuck and the many, because I don't know that there would have been a place for me in the body of Christ had God not brought me into a Calvary Chapel as messed up as I was. Like, you, how, how do you have any hope when you don't even have hope in yourself? And yet you walk into a church and you hear the love of God and the grace of God and God can use anybody and that sparks something inside of you. And that's true for you. I don't care what your background is. It doesn't matter where you've come from, what kind of craziness you were in, whether you just got out of jail right now or you're listening in jail, in Jesus Christ, there is hope for you and God will use you and he will redeem the weaknesses in your life and he will, in Christ, by faith, work all things together for the good for those that love him. So even today, if you write yourself off, God has not written you off in Jesus Christ because of the finished work of the cross. And I am personally grateful for this family of churches. I'm personally grateful of all the places I could have been invited. I was invited into this family and I was welcomed into this family and, and I was helped in this family and they were patient with me. And I pray you receive the same, that you find hope and help and patience and love among the body of Christ. That we would love one another. That we would remember Jesus as he gave the parable of the Good Samaritan and he was bringing down that point to love your neighbor. Remember there was the crescendo and there was everybody, well, who is my neighbor? And you could ask that question today. And so often we're conditioned to think, well, our neighbor is outside of this building. Our neighbor is when we go to work. Our neighbor is the unbeliever. And if you came to that conclusion, you would be partially right. But I want you to understand tonight, church, that when you think of loving your neighbor, if you would just take a moment and look around the room, this is, these are your neighbors. The same love that we would give to the world as we win, disciple, and send is the same love you would give to one another here in this place. That we would extend grace and mercy to one another. That we, when a brother falls, we would help them get up. That we would truly pray for one another and not minimize. You know, sometimes we think, well, all you're doing is praying for me. Man, sometimes praying is all I can do for you. That's the best I can do for you. Because you know, there are times when you face a situation, even some of you with your anger, and this gets revealed, like, like there's part of me that's like, I wish I could take some of it away from you. I wish God would give me some sort of supernatural ability to cut the edge of it, to, to just take it away, or, or maybe you know, put up on a whiteboard just some kind of vision of what the future would look like if you didn't have anger, but I don't have that power. As a matter of fact, I don't have any power at all. The only power that matters in the church of Jesus Christ is the power of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he'll reveal these things to you if you follow him by faith because he does love you and he proved his love for you on the cross. And even if you were to go to the Mayo Clinic, to the website and say, oh, these are the 10 things. Those 10 things are helpful, but they simply do not have the power to deal with the root issue in your life. There is no power in these 10 things. Can you imagine, can you imagine in your own life when you're in the midst of being really angry and you just say, okay, take it easy, take it easy, take it easy. Like, it's just, I don't, <laughs> and other people are trying to tell you, take it easy, take it easy. And what are they, and then it just gets you more angry. Don't tell me what to do. You know, it's like, look, you need to surrender to Jesus. You need to, and I need to just trust in the Lord that he is sovereignly in control of my life. 
and that my anger does not produce anything that resembles the righteousness of God. Nothing. And so Moses had this streak that seemed to never be dealt with because it got the best of him. It got the best of him. Moses was used to deliver a nation, to lead millions of people, to be a spokesperson for God. Dio Moody was listening to a man, Dio Moody, a great evangelist, he was listening to a man by the name of Henry Varley. And he heard Henry Varley say this, and I quote, the world is yet to see what God will do with and for and through and in and by the man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. That was part of a message. And so Henry Varley's teaching, listen, the world has yet to see what God will do with and for and through and in and by the man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. And it was in that moment that D.O. Moody said, I want to be that man. And those of you that know church history know that God used D.L. Moody in amazing ways. Still ministering to this day, even after he's in glory. But why do we make things so harder by trying to cover our sin with meager excuses and justify our sinful habits? Why is it that we're so comfortable with simply dismissing the clear conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives? In every man and every woman, there is that desire to be used, but there's a battle between the flesh and the spirit. And even under the old covenant in Moses, I know there was a battle in his life. The battle's described like this, if you'd like to jot it down in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. It says, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. The Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so that we are not free to carry out our good intentions. And from the New King James, we learned that that's the battle between the Spirit of God in us and our flesh. And I like how this is described, our sinful nature, or another way of thinking of our flesh is our old sinful habit patterns. This is especially strong for those of you who were saved later in life. Saved in your 20s, 30s, 40s, maybe in 50s, because up to that, you've, ha- you've created a lot of sinful habits that don't disappear right away. You're a new creation in Christ spiritually, but you've got that old fleshly brain still, and you've got all these, these, these repetitive motions of the flesh that are natural, and some of your natural fleshly reactions, some of you listening, is an angry reaction. You know, parents, anger is destructive to your children. And some of you are self-deceived that your anger is actually raising righteous, chi- righteous kids. It's not. You might be thinking, but Ed, you don't understand. My grandpa was angry. My dad was angry. My, gra- my dad turned out all right. I turned out all right. And my kids are going to turn out right. But I know a good examination of an angry home will tell you that you were hurt and wounded many times. Because anger doesn't produce the righteousness of God. And because you were wounded and angry, you're, you're, throughout, you were wounded and, and didn't have a voice, because you, you, if you kind of picture it, you know, if your kid's seven years old and you're all mad at them, you're six feet tall, your kid's super short, what, what are they going to do? You know what they're going to do when you're angry? I'll tell you what they're going to do. I'll tell you exactly what they're going to do. A couple things. Number one, they're going to comply. You will get immediate compliance by your kids through your anger. And there's the problem. You misinterpret compliance as godly obedience. But your kid isn't necessarily comp- complying out of godly obedience. You know why they're complying? Because they want you to stop being angry. They're scared. And they learn this repetitively. And so do you. Because your anger got them to stop something. Your anger controlled them. Your anger sent them to the room. And all you really got, compliance. Secondly, you know what your kids are doing? They're hardening their hearts toward you. It's very difficult to follow an angry person because it breaks the line of trust. It's hard to trust someone you're afraid of. And even in your mind, you think, but my kids have never said that. That's because they don't know how to formulate it. 
They don't have the conception of life like you and I do. And whether it's your children or your grandchildren, whether it's your grown children or those that work for you or those that work with you, whether it's your neighbor, anger leads to compliance and hardness. You should jot that down. Anger often leads to compliance, hardness. And a third thing that happens with kids and parents, I know I spoke to you because I just felt like the, this is a very important thing. I felt like the Lord is impressing me to include parents in this. But it's true in all our relationships. Anger also, it's not only compliance, not only hardness, but thirdly, anger leads to avoidance. The least amount of times I need to face your anger, the better. And so I choose to avoid you. And that doesn't make for good relationships within the body of Christ or within family. Moses, yes, was a godly man. According to Numbers, it says he was very humble, more humble than any other person, but he had problems with anger. And I'm going to jot down some scriptures for you so you can look at them. But in Exodus chapter 2, we see that first flash of anger in murder. He murdered someone. He saw that that conflict between the Egyptian and the Hebrew And he felt, I believe, this sense of his deliverer. He was called to be the deliverer, but he took things into his own hands and he literally killed a person. And we know Jesus tied, we know in the new covenant, Jesus tied anger with murder. They go together. Then he lived a life of obedience. Time in Pharaoh's presence. He ends up instituting the Passover. He ends up taking Joseph's bones into the wilderness, following God's lead of pillar of cloud and fire by night, obedience in crossing the Red Sea, and on the list goes. Then his flesh shows up with the manna and the quail when they were provided. Let me read to you Exodus chapter 16. But some of them didn't listen and kept some of it until morning, but by then it was full of maggots. This is speaking of the quail. The children of Israel didn't keep then they, didn't, they were supposed to collect it just enough and when they got more, it, it ended up coming up with maggots and it had a terrible smell. And what was Moses' response? The Bible says, Moses was very angry with them. And after this, the people gathered the food by morning. Then that was followed by another spurt of obedience in his life as he cries out to the Lord and intercedes on the behalf of the people and wants God to provide water for them. And there were more victories, more leadership. There was Mount Sinai in his life. Then we find Moses angry again, Exodus chapter 32, verse 18. But Moses replied, no, it's a shout of victory. It's not a shout of victory, nor a wailing of defeat. I hear the sound of a celebration. And when they came now near the camp, Moses saw the calf and the dancing, and he burned with anger, it says of Moses. And even in this event, there's a struggle between wanting to please God and being angry with the people. But it was Moses' last bout with anger that brought about this episode in Mount Nebo. God was gracious, God was gracious, God was gracious, God was gracious, and then it was the last time that there was now the consequences. Turn over to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. This is the the place that the judgment comes. And it's discouraging. And it is because, you know, God, sometimes we mistake God's patience with God's approval. And you say, well, you know, I had that. And, and, And we never really read of Moses dealing with his anger. So it's not a matter of repentance and cleansing. He just moves on. And then God blesses. And then another anger. And then he moves on. And God blesses. And then mom moves on. And the pattern in the believer I've seen over and over again where You mistake the patience of God with God's approval. But God never approves sin in our lives. Ever, never. Just as anger never produces the righteousness of God, God never approves of sin. But you say, but Ed, God's blessing me. He's blessing you because he loves the people in your life. And he loves you. The blessings of God are his gracious favor in our lives. It's not because of sin, it's in spite of sin. He loves to bless his people. He loves to shower his blessings on you. But they're not his approval. And notice with me in verse 7 of Numbers chapter 20, as we come to this season in the life of Moses, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, You and Aaron must take the staff and assemble the entire community. And as the people watch, 
command the rock over there to pour out its water. And you'll get enough water from the rock to satisfy all the people and their livestock. So Moses, verse 9, did as he was told. He took the staff from the place where it was kept before the Lord. And he and Aaron summoned the people to come and gather at this rock. And notice what Moses does. Just the kind, loving words of God. Listen, you rebels, he shouted. Must we bring water from this rock? And then Moses raised his hand, and what does your Bible say? He struck the rock twice with the staff, and water gushed out. So all the people and their livestock drank their fill. He wasn't told to strike the rock. He was told to speak to the rock. Because this rock, we learn later, was representative of the living water, Jesus Christ. And isn't it true in your life? Have you found this to be true? I have in my life. God will give me the direction to do something and not tell me all the behind, de- behind this, the scene details about it. Just go speak to that rock, Ed. Well, wait a minute. Is there any significance of this rock? Should I speak just right? And what I'm saying going to matter in 20 years? You know, we don't, we just go speak to the rock and give them water. I want to, I, I want to, I know you're frustrated with them, but I want to quench their thirst. I want to take care, because that rock speaks of not just temporary quenching, but it's going to actually be used in the future, inspired by me, through them, this man named Paul that's not even born yet, who's an angry man, they need to get saved. Like, he doesn't give him the whole story. He just tell him, go speak to the rock. And instead of speaking, he strikes it. And he strikes it not once, but twice, which is very significant because that rock representing Jesus Christ doesn't just represent the living water of God, but it also represents the striking upon the Savior. And Jesus died, as we're learning in our study through Hebrews, he died once for the sins, not twice. And this was a wholesale misrepresentation of the holiness of God. Look at God's response. God's response in verse 12 says, But the Lord said to Moses, Because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, you will not lead them into the land that I am giving them. And this place was known as the waters of Meribah, because it was where the people of Israel argued with the Lord, and there he demonstrated his holiness among them. You didn't trust me enough. Because you didn't trust me enough and you misrepresented me and my holiness to the people. Because you're an angry man, Moses. Your anger got the best of you and you're not going in. And how many of the blessings of God have been held back by our sinful anger and our justifications? Because this is an area where many people believe, especially Christians, that it's okay to get angry. It's okay to write that nasty email. It's okay to vent every single thing that's on your mind. It's okay to walk around upset, to yell, etc. It's one of the most justified common sins in the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 says, And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And that yet is another reason, right? So I'm going to get angry, but I'll settle it before I go to sleep. And so, if you're one to excuse your anger, if you're one to dismiss some of the biblical teachings you're receiving tonight, then let me add this to you. Perhaps it's okay to be angry if, number one, when you're angry, you don't sin. Number two, when you're angry, you don't go to sleep with it. Number three, it's anger from God and not your own selfishness and not man's anger. Number four, it'd be okay if all of these, they all go together. Number four, it'd be okay to be angry if it achieves the righteousness of God. And number five, it's okay to be angry if it comes very, very slowly. But you see, angry, anger can be a real foothold of the devil in our lives. Anger leads to unforgiveness and resentment and bitterness. We know the Bible speaks of bitterness taking a foothold in our lives and strangling the very spiritual life out of us, that by the time anger becomes bitterness and they're often intertwined, the Bible speaks of bitterness defiling those around us. It's a very serious matter in the body of Christ, hindering many from the fullness of the promised land of faith in him, enjoying the promises of God. That's why the Bible instructs us to put it away. 
in Colossians chapter 3, you can jot it down. It says, now is the time to get rid of anger. Galatians chapter 5 verse 20 speaks of outbursts of anger or outbursts of wrath as a work of the flesh. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 22. An angry person starts fights and a hot-tempered person commits all kinds of sin. And so I love what Jesus taught us as we wind down here. Turn over to Luke's gospel with me, would you? Luke chapter 6, because some of you may feel just, just a lack. You feel like it's a lack of ability to ever overcome this because it's always been surrounding you, part of you. You did grow up in an environment like that. You learned some bad habits, and you're just like, I just don't know where to start. I don't know what to do, Ed. What you're sharing with me sounds impossible. And indeed, the acknowledgement of the impossibility of overcoming sin in your own strength is true. And yet what's impossible with man is possible with God. And we often overlook some of the most simplest teachings of Jesus. Or like Moses, we don't trust him enough to apply these in our lives. And so listen to what Jesus says. He actually teaches this in relationship to the reality of what comes out of your life. And so notice in in Luke chapter 6, pick up in verse 43, where Jesus says, A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. A tree is identified by its fruit, and figs are never gathered from thorn bushes, and grapes aren't picked from bramble bushes. And I love this. I mark this, underline it, highlight it, circle it. If you're on your iPad, go ahead and color it. And this is what he says, this sentence. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. That's encouraging. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. And this is what the Bible teaches. The fruit of our lives is generated by the Holy Spirit by that which is deposited in our hearts. Jesus said in another place, what comes out of your mouth actually proceeds from the depth of your heart. And that tells us a lot about the key of dealing with anger. Confessing it, surrendering, walking in the spirit, but also taking care of the inward man and inward woman by making sure we're depositing in our heart those things that will come out. Jesus, or excuse me, Paul would put it this way in Philippians chapter four. Now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all that you've learned and received from me. Everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. The pathway to your heart is your mind. So often we are troubled by our heart and we're troubled by our emotions and we're troubled by our feelings so much so that they overwhelm us and so we go after the feelings but you know as well as I do it's virtually impossible to deal with our feelings like when you're sad and you tell yourself don't be sad what does your mind say I'll be sad if I want to be sad Like, I'm sad. How can you tell me not to be sad? I'm sad, and I have a good reason to be sad. And it's an endless argument that will end in frustration. However, however, if in your mind you acknowledge to God, I'm sad, you just say, God, I'm sad in your prayer life. I'm sad, but I'm asking you to fill me with your joy. You change your mind, God will change your heart. You change your mind, You know, we can't change our hearts. They are where they are, and they're often moved by circumstances. And I can't change your heart. It's one of the most difficult, frustrating things of a pastor or a leader is that many of the problems we deal with in the church are not behavior issues, they're heart issues. And I can't touch your heart. I wish I could. And and many times when it's a heart issue, if I come to deliver you and go, bro, I think it's a heart issue, you get all defensive and upset and many people run away and say, oh, I don't want, it's, they don't, they're judging me and they're, no, bro, it's like, seriously, it's a heart issue. Like, if you just get your heart right with the Lord, you'd be amazing. It's not behavior. It's like, and I can't touch this. I could just pray for you and perhaps the Lord would help me with you. You know as well as I do, especially if you've been, if somebody comes and says, you're just angry, you're like, I'm not angry. Like, bro, you're angry. Tell me you're not angry right now. Like, I see it. 
Or, or somebody writes you a nasty email and you're like, oh, that's like bitter. So I'm not bitter. Like, read your email again. As I learned recently, and I've shared it, I don't know if I shared it here, but I'll share it in this. Bitterness, angry, you know, bitterness really is like bad breath, right? Everybody knows you have it, but you. And we're the last often to accept. And so when it comes to, when it comes to, when it comes to anger, number one, it's good to pray Psalm 139 in your life. Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24. To memorize it. It's a good prayer. So many of you, as I start to read it, you're very familiar with the passage where it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Search me, Lord. And then secondly, when God reveals to you, confess it. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The believer is to live an ongoing repentance and ongoing confession of what God reveals. And so while, while, Moses misses out on, while Moses misses out on going into the promised land, you don't have to. And in our next time together, we'll meet a man by the name of Saul. Because I know in a Bible study like this, still some will leave the end of the study unconvinced that God can do a work in their lives. And you're just convinced in arguing in your mind and arguing with me, maybe not out loud, but just like, no, Ed, you don't understand. I've been angry all my life. I come from, and I just, it's, it's for everyone else but me. But you can read ahead as we'll get to in our next study in Acts chapter 9. We meet a man that's described as breathing out murder and threats. And the idea of that Greek word is that he was breathing in murder and bringing out threats. Like his life was described by angry madness like Nebuchadnezzar. And if you were to watch this man and you were a Christian, you would purposely avoid him because he literally was going after and jailing and, Christian and killing Christian families, boys, girls, moms, and dads. He's the kind of guy like that. He is out of control, unreachable, avoid him, comply, get away. And yet we meet that man on the road to Damascus encountering and having a real encounter with the living God and his life was forever changed in an instant, in an instant. And that same passion that was used in a sinful way was turned around to be used for the glory of God and Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the Apostle who the rest of his life lived, in, lived a life not perfect. Bad, some of the lessons we get about, learn, about battling the spirit in the flesh, we get from Paul. <laughs> his own personal experience. You want to know how, 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 what, how much of a struggle Paul had? Read Romans chapter 7. As a matter of fact, sometimes anger we, is in Romans chapter 7. The things that I do, I don't want to do. And the things that I don't do, I want to do. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And so many people just stay in Romans 7. When Romans chapter 8 opens up, there is therefore now no condemnation in God. No condemnation of those who turn to him. He says, Paul says, my hope is in God. And he's able to deliver us. And he's able to make us loving. And he's able to infuse what's known in the Bible as agape love, self-sacrificial love. And so I want to pray for us today because this is part, I believe, of this ongoing work in our church family. And I know that this is going out to the broader church, but I'm responsible for our church. And I believe this is a topic that God has brought to us for such a time as this. It's one of those topics that I'm actually praying about teaching on a weekend so that if you guys come, you'll hear it again. I'll probably improve all my mistakes then by third, second service on Sunday, but maybe. I just feel like I've been praying about whether God wants me to deliver this to the broader church, our larger, the, everyone here that's on a Sunday, everyone that's here on a Saturday, because anger is hindering the progress of the gospel. It's hindering your relationships. It's hindering, it's, it's turning into frustration, it's turning into bitterness, it's turning into unforgiveness, and it's sapping the life out of the church. And we are no longer loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and therefore choosing who to love. We literally choose who we want to love. We will label people, some label, so they don't become our neighbor, and give them some reason not to love them, not to extend grace to them, not to... to, to 
demonstrate the love of God. So pray for me. And then you'll find out when I find out if I deliver it on a weekend. But God's will was for you to hear it today and for you to act upon what you heard. Whether it's for you personally or there's an angry person in your life, that there is hope and freedom in Jesus Christ. And he can change the hardest of hearts in the most difficult of situations and bring great agape love into your life. So Father, we ask for you to take your word, your living written word, and I pray that as this message was fashioned and formed and put together with words to communicate that your word would not return void, that we would heed the warnings of your scriptures, but we would also take advantage of the gifts of your scripture. And that there would just be freedom flowing today. And there would just be a sense of release today. That you would relieve the burden of anger. Even that kind of anger that just borders on righteous anger and borders on like good anger and borders on, but it just gets so muddied and and it turns into bad anger. And we don't always know the lines, God. We don't always see the lines. Forgive us for that. And if you're here today and you would say to me, Ed, like you said that anger wasn't my biggest issue. You said that my biggest issue was being separate from God. I want to invite you to solve that issue today by turning away from your sins. The Bible word for that is repent. You're going to learn a lot of Bible words in our church. And the Bible word is for that is repent. If you will repent of your sins, you believe in your heart confessing with your mouth, like saying out of your mouth that you accept Jesus Christ because inside of you, you believe that Jesus lived for you and died for you and rose again. I want to invite you to follow Jesus today. So if you're here today and you would want to commit your life to following Jesus Christ and just deal with the biggest issue in your life first, would you just stand to your feet? I'd like to pray with you. And I do acknowledge those on the radio and on the internet right now that they just stand where you're at. I mean, if you're driving, you can't do that, but maybe you pull over. You know, your tears are too much in your eyes and you just pull over, just take a moment, a holy moment on I-25 or down Parker Road or in some neighborhood in Lakewood and just stop and acknowledge God in your life. And for you in this room, I mean, we're here, so I want to invite you right in this room that today would be the day It was a Wednesday night myself that I responded to the invitation. So grateful Pastor Jeff gave three invitations that night, not just one, not just two, but three for a hard head, hard heart like me. So I invite you, let's follow Jesus together. Join us on the journey. Leave your sins behind. Let God remove the guilt and the shame. Let him begin to repair your life from the inside out. Is there anybody here? Say, Ed, that's me. Let's do it. Let's we'll do it together, like ongoing, man. The Lord's doing a work in all of us. God bless you in the back. I see you. Anyone else? And I just get this sense that there are people responding on the radio right now, and there are also people responding on YouTube and watching this on Vimeo or on your app and I just want you to pray to God I'm not asking you to follow me I'm asking you to join me I'm not asking you to join this church I'm asking you to join us on a journey following Jesus I'm asking you to turn your passion into a faithful committed relationship with God that will transform all of the relationships and give God time it's not going to happen overnight salvation happens in a moment but life change takes time. So one of the first things you're going to feel when you leave here is like, man, I I don't know that anything really changed, but by faith, by faith, everything changed. And so let's follow the Bible's example and confess with your mouth. So I'm going to give you a prayer you can repeat with me, repeat after me. And you guys that share the gospel at work, you guys that share the gospel out to the UPS driver, Like you can pray the same prayer with them right on your front step, right in the cubicle, right in the coffee room. 
right there in King Super's parking lot, you can pray the same prayer with somebody. So you could say this, ready? Just talking straight to God. You could say, God, I admit that I've sinned against you and I ask you to forgive me for all of my sins. I believe you sent Jesus Christ to live for me, to die for me, and I believe he rose again from the dead to save my soul. And I'm asking you, God, to forgive me for all of my sin and help me to turn my life away from my sinful past and to follow you all the days of my life. And Father, I pray for a special outpouring, God, of your spirit on those that responded, that this would be real and genuine and that we would see them grow, watch them change, and one day, Lord, watch them reproduce as they share with others. And we rejoice with the angels in heaven today for the work of salvation and change you've done among us. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.